0: My brother-in-law is not an idiot. Evidence to support that statement. He is a practicing physician. He has been a law-abiding and a productive citizen for all of his life. And he is getting close to retirement. Now before you try to figure out who it is, I should warn you that in my lifetime, I have had five brothers-in-law, all of whom would fit that description. About two years ago, two or three years ago, Richard came to visit, whoops, Richard came to visit around Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays and as is oftentimes the way things go with families, we sat down to a friendly family game of Pictionary and Richard and I were paired as partners. That's not the bad part necessarily. The bad part is that we were paired against my wife, Diane, and our good family friend, Philip Smith, both of whom are excellent artists. A word that does not describe either Richard or me. We did not do well. A good example of how well we did was the time when I was to draw out a picture describing a famous phrase or saying for Richard to guess. We had rolled the dice so that it was actually just us. We weren't competing for time, so I had all the time in the world to draw this picture. And I carefully drew out a picture that I thought portrayed the phrase excellently. Richard picked up my drawing, looked at it for a few seconds, and then said that well-known phrase, mother angle turkey honk. Needless to say, our minds do not work as one. That is the same problem God has with us. Last week we started this series on the mind of God and I tried to set the context, the situation in which the great controversy that we as Seventh-day Adventists believe in is found. If you all heard the same sermon that my family heard, I apologize. My father, who probably is watching, said, it's really complex. It would have been easier just to say it's a lot like Star Wars. This from the man who can regale you for hours about the differences and similarities between the Manichaean and the Albigensian heresies. Thanks, Dad. But as we look at the context in which we find what God is trying to do, we see that we live in a war zone. This is not something that we chose. We were born into a war zone. In this war zone, there is a battle going on between Christ and God and Satan and his, God's enemies. His enemies claim that God cannot be trusted. He is not a good governor. The methods he uses in the government of his universe are not adequate. The laws that he has given to his beings are too harsh, too exacting, and we don't need them. His motives in the creation of beings was selfish. He just wanted essentially slaves to do his bidding. God, however, took this case to court, and it was the court of the universe open to everybody, to all of his created beings around the universe to try to decide for themselves who was telling the truth. And as we left it last week, they still were not convinced. It wasn't until we get to the cross where all of the questions were answered that had been raised. As part of his answer, God created this world as a showcase of his love and his mercy, and he created two perfect beings, Adam and Eve, our parents. We as human beings were created for two main things. One is to worship God. And we find that this drive is still Deep within us, everybody ends up worshiping something or somebody as God. The other thing we are called to do is to reflect the image of God to those around us, to reveal the character of God to those with whom we live and to the universe. Paul says we are a spectacle to men and to angels or a theater to the universe. That the whole world, whole universe is watching what is going on here. So the things we are to do is to worship our Creator and to reflect His character to those around us. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve sinned, and this made the problem all the worse. Today we want to go on from that. We talked about can we understand last week what was He thinking when He created this world, and hopefully you have a piece of an answer to that. Today we want to go on, or I want to go on anyway, to an application of that. How do we take the idea that we can understand what God has has been thinking when he created, when he has been working in the world, in the universe, and now we need to apply it to our lives. I think it begins at the garden, the gates of the Garden of Eden, as he was sending Adam and Eve out of the garden after they sinned. I don't think we spend enough time looking at what actually happened there. But if you remember the story, it was important to keep Adam and Eve away from the tree of life so that sin did not be perpetuated forever. And as he was sending them out, he had a discussion with Adam and Eve. And we don't have all of what he said, but we do have some of it. And he talked about how he was going to do special things for them that I think we need to understand. He also admitted that life is not fair. A lot of us have that claim against God. We say, God, how can you do this to me? How can you put me into these situations where I have cancer or where my children are doing things that are hurting me or whatever the situation may be? Many of us feel life is not fair. We didn't ask to be born into this world. We did not ask to be born into a life of sin. And at the gates of the Garden of Eden, God says, you're right. Life is not fair. But because of that, I'm going to do some things for you. First of all, I'm going to give you some gifts. I'm going to put enmity between you and your enemy and mine Satan. Without that enmity, we would have no chance. We would automatically follow Satan wherever he led us. That enmity helps us to say, wait a minute, there's something better. There's a better way. There is a better follow, a better leader that we can follow. He also said, I will send the Spirit to be with you, to help guide you as you're trying to make decisions. I will give you that protection. And finally, the greatest promise of all, he said, I will take upon myself the consequences of your sinning. Yes, you will have troubles. Yes, you will struggle. Yes, the earth will be cursed because of you, and there will be lots of times where you will wonder what is going on. But I will take the ultimate consequences of this decision that you have made that is leading to death upon myself. We as human beings still, as I mentioned earlier, have that drive to worship. And as we worship, whatever that is that we worship, we also continue to have that characteristic that was given to Adam and Eve at the beginning that we reflect to the world and to the universe whatever it is that we are worshiping. If we worship ourselves, we become very self-centered and very concerned about what happens to us. If we worship procreation, we become totally concerned about what's going on with with sex. If we worship the world or the sun, we become totally convinced that that is something that we need to be focusing on. And whatever it is we worship, we make an idol out of that God and we then reflect to the world the characteristics of that God. We're told that Satan, knowing this, has tried his best to misrepresent what God is like. That he has tried to paint God with his characteristics. How he, as a demanding, exacting, ruthless, arbitrary, and unforgiving person, tries to paint God that way. And if we end up worshiping anything besides God, we end up becoming, in our own lives, very demanding, very arbitrary, very cruel, very exacting, very harsh, very unforgiving to those around us. And so it's important for us, as we look at this whole world that we are caught up in, the whole situation that we are caught up in, it is very important for us to determine in our own lives who or what are we worshiping. My hero in the third grade was Danny. I was in third grade, he was in high school, and Danny, to me, was what every male should be. He was good-looking, he was athletic, he was a good gymnast, he was a good skier, he was musical, he owned a Mustang, and I did everything I could to try to copy Danny. Danny was kind to me and realized that I had this sort of infatuation with him, and sometimes he would try to help me be cool. He'd give me pointers, he'd tell me things that I could do to be a little cooler, ways I could dress. He was actually very nice to me. Until one day, I asked him a question. I said, Danny, I try to look and be like you, but there's something that you have that I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get it how do you get your nose to be so shiny? I've tried to put Vaseline on my nose. It's not the same. I don't know how you do it. He looked at me with disgust, and I don't remember after that him very often trying to help me be cool. It wrecked our relationship. But he was for a period of time the God in my life. I tried to be like him, and I didn't do a very good job of reflecting him because I couldn't figure out how to get my nose to shine. Until, of course, I became a teenager, and then it did shine, and I wished it didn't. In the Old Testament, we have a lot of stories about God's followers, and we have stories of them thinking God's thoughts after him, of friends of God, The only ones that God really talks about much in the Bible as being real good friends are in the Old Testament. He does say he wants his disciples to be friends and not to be servants anymore, but his good friends are friends like Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Samuel, Noah, and as we look at them and we look at how they reflected God's character, we can see them thinking God's thoughts after him. Some of the easiest examples, or one of the easiest examples, is Abraham on Mount Moriah. And we're told both in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy that as Abraham took his son to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him as God had requested, it took him three days to travel from where he lived in Beersheba to the top of Mount Moriah. And we're told he did not sleep any of those nights. He stayed up every night wrestling with God. And the reason he wrestled with God was because God was asking him to do something that made absolutely no sense. Now, to us, what makes no sense is to kill your son. But that was actually common in the nations around Abraham at the time. That was not unknown. It was actually fairly common. It's common in heathen nations around the world that they had human sacrifices. To appease their God. What didn't make sense to Abraham was this was the child of promise. This was the one he had been waiting for. This was the one whom God had said would be the father of many nations, who would have children like sands on the seashore. How could that happen if he was now being asked to kill him? And we're told that as he struggled through this for three days and three nights, he finally came to the conclusion, Paul says, that I know God has made this promise to me through Isaac. If I am to sacrifice him, either God is going to raise him from the dead or God is going to provide a substitute. And as he came to that conclusion, he came to a bit of peace in his mind But he still asked God, could you give me just a little sign that I've figured this out? And Ellen White says that as he asked, God then had a special supernatural light that shone over the top of Mount Moriah and Abraham was at peace. He then, of course, took Isaac to the top of the mountain, and as we all know the story, as he was getting ready to sacrifice him, an angel stopped his hand, and then a ram was seen caught in a bush, and Abraham thought God's thoughts after God, this is what God wants me to sacrifice. Another fairly, fairly obvious example was one I wrote about in the Daily, daily Walk, Noah, Noah, It used to always intrigue me, why did God put two of every unclean beast and seven of every clean beast onto the ark? That was unfair to the seventh one. How was he going to find a mate? And yet, as you see at the end of the flood, as Noah is coming out of the ark, he then, I believe, thinks God's thoughts after him and sacrifices one of every clean animal to God as a thanksgiving for, sur- for the survival of living through the flood. I believe he was thinking God's thoughts after him, that God had prepared him by sending seven clean animals and one was for the sacrifice. There are also some harder examples in the Old Testament where God's friends are trying to figure out what is God thinking. One of them is when Abraham is sitting in the cool of the day, and angels with Christ with them come to meet him, and he has lunch with them, and then Christ takes him over and tells him what he is going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy them, because their wickedness has reached such a level that For the safety of those around them, I must destroy them." And Abraham begins to to argue and bargain with God. And it's not so much, I used to think he was trying to save his his relatives there, Lot and his family were there, it's not so much he's trying to save people. He starts out with 50, he says, God, if there's 50 there, you wouldn't destroy it. Then he goes down to 30, to 5, to to 10, and gets to finally where God says, there aren't even 10 that are worthy of being saved in Sodom. The issue that Abraham had was not so much save Lot and his family, which God anyway did anyway. The issue he had was, God, this will spoil your reputation. How can you do this? What will the nations think? What will the others think? How will I be able to continue to reflect your character to those around if this is what they are looking at. He was more concerned about God and his character than he was about his reputation or the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is right? And God said, essentially, you don't understand now, but eventually you will. It was hard for Abraham to figure that out. Another time in the Old Testament where a friend of God had a difficult time and actually argued with God was when Moses was talking to God in the mountain after the people had made the golden calf and had essentially turned back to the gods of Egypt, back to the fertility cults of Egypt and neglected or turned away from God that was leading them to the promised land. And God says to Moses, I am so angry with these people, step aside and let me destroy them, and I will make a great nation out of you and your family. Now, that's the time to take out your bumper sticker where it says God said it, I believe it, that's all there is to it. Go ahead, wipe them out, make me a great nation. But Moses was trying to think the thoughts of God, and he said, God, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. What will the people of Egypt think if you do this? They will think you weren't strong enough to save your people. Even after all you did in Egypt to bring them out, they will say that you couldn't get them to the promised land. God, this will not reflect good on you or your character. Don't do it. In the Clear Word Bible, it goes, talking about this, he takes it a little further than some of the other translations where he said, Moses understood that God was testing his love for the people, and he came through and showed that he truly did love the people and he loved God. He was thinking God's thoughts after him. We see another story in Job, of course. Job is the classic example of life is not fair and what is going on in the universe. Where Job loses his family, he loses his riches, he loses the the affection of his wife, it almost seems, and his theologian friends come and tell him, you are a great sinner. God would not be punishing you the way you are if God didn't think you are a terrible sinner. Confess, Job. Do whatever you have to do because God is out to get you. And Job is trying to think through his relationship with God and trying to remember the the thoughts of God that he has had in the past. And he says, that's not the God I worship. That's not what God is like. I wish I could sit down and talk to God about what's going on but the skies above me seem to be brass and nothing's going through. Our relationship seems to be broken. God isn't meeting with me like he used to. I wish I could talk to him because the way you portray God is not the God that I worship. Toward the end of the book, God comes in might and power and overwhelms Job and his friends. Sort of like Elijah, on the mount where the earthquake and the fire and the wind and God's mighty power is seen. Job and his friends see that, and finally Job shakingly says, God, I have spoken beyond my knowledge. I bow in dust and ashes, and I repent. And then God does something that is absolutely startling. He says, no, Job, stand up. Quit yourself like a man. You have said what is right about me. It's your friends, these theologians, that need your prayers. And they are standing there ready to accept their merit badges, ready to give each other high fives that God has finally vindicated what they've been telling Job. But God says, Job, make sacrifices for these friends. Pray for your friends because they are wrong. You have known what is right about me and have told the truth about my character thinking God's thoughts after him, even in a very difficult time. Another person who said no to God, tremblingly, was Peter. Remember Peter when he was asleep on the top of the house uh, and uh, he begins to have dreams? And this sheet comes down from heaven filled with filthy, unclean animals. And a voice says to him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. God said it. I believe it. That's all there is to it, right? But Peter says, no, God, that doesn't make sense. You've told us these things are unclean to eat. They're not healthy for us. This is something we're not to do. Three times the dream comes to Peter, and three times As his blood pressure is skyrocketing and he's getting close to a stroke, Peter says, no, God, I can't do this. And then the messenger comes from Cornelius and says, there is a Gentile who would love to have you come, Peter, and teach him about your God, about Jesus Christ who you worship. And Peter finally gets it finally understands, finally is able to think God's thoughts after him and says, God, I have been treating Gentiles as if they were filthy animals. That's not what you want. You want us to take your truth, the good news about your character, to them as well. And he goes and preaches to them. The last example that I have today for thinking God's thoughts after him is actually not quite thinking God's thoughts. It's trying to read God's mind. And it's the story of Simon, the leper, who as a Pharisee came down with leprosy, which was known as the scourge of God. It was known to the Jewish people that if you came down with leprosy, God was punishing you. They hadn't learned the lessons of the book of Job. And if you became a leper, you were ostracized, you were sent out of the camp, out of the town, away from everyone, and it was a living hell, a living death, where you could not get near anybody that you loved, you could not get near anybody, you had to warn them to stay away from you. And uh, there are examples in medieval times of these clackers that they had to shake to warn people to stay away, I am a leper. Well, Simon had been a Pharisee in a fairly well-known community and a fairly well-known house, family. And to become a leper was truly the end of his life to him. Christ had healed him from leprosy. Ellen White tells us a little thing, a little bit more about this than we find in the Bible. She tells us that Simon was Mary Magdalene's uncle and that Simon had led Mary into a life of sin. Remember when it talks about Mary, it says she was known as a loose woman in the town? Uncle Simon, the church elder, the church preacher, the Pharisee had led her into that life of sin. And I'm sure when he came down with leprosy, he thought it was God's justice punishing him for what he had done. But Christ had healed both of them. He had healed Mary of seven devils. He had healed Simon of leprosy. And as a good Pharisee, he had to try to pay back Christ. So he held a feast in his house, and he invited the people from the town. He invited Christ. And he was thanking Christ for healing him from his leprosy. In the middle of the meal, Mary comes in and also thanks Christ. She does it, she tries to do it quietly without people noticing. And she takes this spicknard or this perfume that she had saved money to buy and she breaks open the bottle and she pours it on, God, on Christ's feet and wipes it with her hair and with her tears. The smell, of course, goes throughout the whole room, and it draws attention to what Mary is doing. The disciples, particularly Judas, look at her, and Judas says to himself and to others, this is a waste of money. Think of what we could have done with the money had we taken that spicknard and sold it. Simon, on the other hand, looks at this and he begins to try to read the mind of Christ. And he says, if Christ knew what kind of woman this is who is touching him, he would never let her touch him. The hypocrisy of someone who had led his niece into this life of sin, who had been punished and had been healed, he thought, from doing this, to still have that attitude towards his niece is almost mind-boggling. But Christ then also reads the mind of Simon, and he says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say on. He said, tells a story of two debtors, one who had a great debt that was forgiven, and one that had a smaller debt that was forgiven. And he asks him, Simon, Which of these two would love the most, their forgiver? And Simon says, the one who was forgiven the most, and it strikes him with blinding light. This story is about me and my niece. This man reads my thoughts, knows our characters, and knows what I am thinking. Now Christ did not embarrass Simon in front of the audience. I would have. I would have said, Simon, you filthy hypocrite. You are the one who led your niece into this life of sin, and now you're telling me I shouldn't even let her touch me. You get out of my sight. But Simon was also a child of God. Simon was also someone that God wanted to win and because of the way Christ dealt with him, he became one of Christ's most devoted followers, we're told. We also see this in the way God treated sinners throughout his time here on earth. When the woman caught in adultery is thrown at his feet, he doesn't embarrass these hypocritical Pharisees that are bringing her to him. He quietly lets them know, I understand your sinners, I know your sins. Get out of here. Time and time again, Christ not only tries to save the obvious sinner, he tries to save the hypocritical sinners. That is really good news for Seventh-day Adventists. Because we usually don't do really bad things. Not usually. But we very often think about that person. How could you befriend that person? How could God love that person? Or we're like the older brother in the prodigal son story. How can you accept that son back into your house? Look at him. He's filthy. Look at all the venereal diseases he's bringing back. Look at the terrible life he has led. That's usually the picture of us as Seventh-day Adventists. But the good news is that God will do whatever he can to reach both the hypocritical sinners and the blatant obvious sinners. When I was in eighth grade, I fell in love with a pop group called Jay and the Americans. Most of you will have never have heard of them. But they had a song that is just so great in its lyrics that it's got to move you sentimentally and romantically. How can you not be moved by Cry, I ing over you? cry i ing over you. That spoke to me when I was in eighth grade. I bought glasses like Jay Black, the leader of Jay and the Americans. I bought all of their records and listened to them over and over again. I even bought the sheet music so that I could play to some degree their songs on the piano. I loved Jay and the Americans. I loved them so much that I actually thought I want to be called Jay. I talked to my girlfriend at the time and said, what would you think if I took a nickname, Jay? She said, that would be really cool. So I talked to my teacher and I said, Mr. Lake, from now on, I want to be called Jay Johnson, not Mark Johnson. I'm not sure what he thought, but he said, okay, if that's what you want, that's fine. And everything went swimmingly until the first time he addressed me in class as Jay. And all of my classmates, except my girlfriend, turned and looked at him, looked at me and said, what? Did you call him Jay? And Mr. Lake kindly explained to them that I had requested that this be my new nickname, that I be called Jay. The ridicule that came from my loving classmates was almost unbearable. They then began to take nicknames of their own and began signing their, signing their papers, Santa Claus or Mickey Mouse or whatever, and Mr. Lake finally had to call me into his office and say, Mark, Jay, this isn't working. This isn't working. These classmates of yours are mother turkey angle honks. Mother angle turkey honks. Sorry, got that wrong Richard. You're going to have to not be called Jay anymore." And I said, Mr. Lake, I understand. I have learned a lot through this ordeal. Please, don't call me Jay anymore. Call me Ringo. (laughs) It is a law that we become like the one we admire and worship. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus.